context where we were last week. Um, and we're going to make a very strong effort. In fact, we're not leaving until we're done this parasha. Okay? <laughs> So you can ask questions, and that's great. Or and and the truth is, what I've prepared was a little bit further, so we can maybe read a little bit, and maybe we'll stop a little bit, but primarily we'll do some reading, and then we'll dig in because there's some amazing themes that are worth stressing at the uh, end of this week's parsha. Uh, this uh, well, this section of the Torah. Now, um, just just to just put us back in perspective, where were we? We uh, we have Abraham. Abraham has a young eligible bachelor by the name of Isaac. Isaac is of age. Abraham says to his his servant, whose name was Eliezer, uh, he tells him, "I want you to head east to the place where I grew up, to my my parents, uh, you know, to my uh, to, you know, to the country that I am from, and find a spouse for my son Isaac." Uh, from those women. Don't take a woman from the women of Canaan, from from Israel. Head out east towards uh, Mesopotamia to uh, to find a spouse for Isaac. And he makes him swear. And which is an interesting thing because this is the Torah gives us a very very detailed, as we'll see today, description of this courtship, uh, or more precisely, this selection or this vetting of a spouse for uh, for Isaac. Uh, and. What's uh, another interesting insight uh, that I'm sure was stressed upon last week, even though I have no idea what was said last week, uh, is that the primary effort that Eliezer expended to try to seek out a spouse for Isaac was one of prayer. And we'll see this, this come back again and again today, the idea of trying to find a mate. So in this case, it's for Isaac. But the lesson is timeless because we're all trying at some point in our lives are trying to find someone to share our lives with. What you find from this parsha, this description of seeking a mate for Isaac is the centrality of God in this process. Now, obviously, God's involved in every process of our lives. Obviously, we know that, right? We don't breathe. We don't live. The world doesn't exist without God. But specifically in this one vexing area of life, and I say vexing because the majority of humanity, at least in America, seems to be quite poor at this process of spouse selection. If you believe statistics, we're quite bad at it. And the Jewish attitude... Right? Since time of the mortal, as described in this section of the Torah, which is the only part of the Torah really that we talk about how spouses met and what selection process was. We don't know how Abraham met Sarah. The Torah doesn't tell us. Right? Jacob a little bit. Moses also a little bit. But this is detail. And, and this is detail because this is going to teach us a lesson. As we know, Torah is not telling us stories for the story's sake. It's telling us stories because the stories have a lesson for us even today in Houston 2014. So the Torah is very detailed to describe the selection process of a spouse for Isaac because that could be, could be replicated by us, by our children, right? today's society, in spouse selection. And like we said, it's uh, specifically timely for our generation because our generation seems to be getting worse uh, at, uh, at, this, uh, at this process. Okay, so we seem like we're smack in the middle, and um, I don't know who, who's who's a good reader, who's a speedy, expeditious reader. Dave, want to read? Okay, my wife's a much better reader. No, no, no. Just okay. read. 
Just read. Okay. So. The man was astonished at her, maintaining silence to know whether Hashem had made successful his journey or not. And it was when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a, a nose ring of gold, a becca, with its weight and two bracelets to wear on her hands. Ten gold shekels was their weight. And she said, The daughter of whom are you? Inform me, please. Is there in the house of your father place for us to spend the night? She said to him, The daughter of Bethuel am I, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she said to him, Even straw and even fodder is plentiful with us as well. well we read this. Yeah, we did. You were right. We went by this. Goodness gracious. What? Yeah, just 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 read okay. at least to the bottom here. Yeah. Even straw is even fodder is plentiful with us as well as place to spend the night. But bow low to the man, and he prostrated himself to Hashem. Basically, he's giving, um, he's thanking the Almighty uh, for making his thing successful. It turns out that this uh, this girl, whom he almost randomly selected, right? He just saw a girl, and he's like. She's the one. And he's just some inspiration that he had. He devised this test. He says, I'm going to ask her for water. And the, the the one, you know, the right one, so to speak, is going to say, not only am I going to give you water, I'm going to give your camels water. So um, what's I think there's really two takeaways from this. Takeaway number one is that when you're engaging in spouse selection – or dating, or whatever you want to call it. I like to call it spouse selection because it removes any romance, any hint of romance. Spouse selection. It's like, please make your selection. And in truth, I would argue that when it's romance, right? When, when, you know, when it's when when there's when, when there's excitement, well, then you know the person's ability to make rational choices is limited. It's, you know, it's tampered with. So when I say spouse selection, I'm saying that. It seems like a cerebral process. Okay, we want X, right? That's an important quality that we look for, look for in a spouse, right? We want a, a spouse for Isaac, right? Who is going to be the continuation of Abraham? Abraham was a paragon of kindness, Chesed. That was his trait. We need someone who's going to be the matriarch of the Jewish people to also have this trait of Chesed of kindness. Well, how will we find out if uh, if the girl has kindness? Well, let's devise a test. Let's do some, let's put her in a situation where she'll have to act either in a kind way or in an unkind way. You devise a test and voila, she passed the test. So first thing I would say is that, well, maybe even three things. Number one, you have to know what you're looking for. Right? If you want to figure out if this potential spouse is compatible with you, well, you have to know what, what are we looking for. So in the house of Abraham, what were they looking for? A kind, a kind person, right? Also, Number one, he specifically said that has to be related to them. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and then it turned out that it was related. Well, that you can't know. Right? It happens to be that's why he was so excited and thanks to prostrates in front of that's God. That's why he was sent to where he was sent to. Just yeah, but I'm sure there were other people there yeah. as well. Yeah. So. Second thing is, you know what you want. Devise the test. How are you going to figure that out? You know, I always find that there's you have couples unfortunately get divorced, which is quite common. And uh, one of the reasons given for divorce is this person has X, Y, or Z negative character, and it's just I can't live with it. This person's so stubborn, so impatient, so kind, so. Mean. And what? What do you mean? Why did you not know that beforehand? 
you were dating for six months, six years, what happened? You had so much time to figure out to figure out this person's character. Love is blind. Well, at least in the romantic. She started, so yes. So she started out kind and then wasn't like diversely. No, but people don't change that much. Come on, a yeah, little so bit. Maybe c- certain situations might bring out bring down negative characters. The best of them out there to catch somebody, and then they would tell who they are. <laughs> Some people, vice versa. Yeah, not just. I agree. Women. Some people do. What do you mean? Put, they put false. Yeah, false. They false. They false. yeah, but yeah, assuming they're, they're dating and living that. together yeah. for two years, well, you can't be on guard for that long. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's revise it. <laughs> the point is, is that if you're not looking for it and you don't find out a way to have an organic test to measure whether that person has said character trait or not, you might not ever know about it. And you could date for three years and not know about it, or you could date for three minutes or spouse selection, engage spouse selection for three minutes, like Elijah did, and boom, because he had a test, he was able to find it right away. And the last takeaway, perhaps, from this uh, this story is that maybe maybe the reason why Eliezer was looking for a spouse that had the quality of kindness is not only specific to Isaac and the family of Abraham. Perhaps this is the most important quality in a spouse. Period. Why? Because as we know, kindness is a root characteristic. If someone is kind, they care for other people, they're thinking about other people, then they have everything else. Everything else is just a byproduct of that. The root of all negative characters is the fact that someone thinks about themselves only. If you think about yourself only, you're selfish. You're less likely to compromise. You're less likely to give up a little bit of yourself to make room in your life for someone else. If you think about other people, and you're willing to give up a little bit of your own comfort, your own identity, right, for the sake of the greater good, for the sake of the, of the couple, for the sake of the family, right? then the transition to marriage will be much smoother, obviously. as if, you know, it's, Obviously, there's going to be hiccups in the way. But by definition, the marriage will be successful because taking two people and making them into one entity demands that people give up a little of themselves. And if someone is selfish, only cares about themselves, they won't do that. And the marriage will probably fail. Right. What worries me is, why does she accept such as expensive presents? Women and jewelry. Enough, <laughs> <laughs> enough said. From a stranger. Yeah, I mean, he, he was, was a stranger. stranger. Is a little bit. Yeah. He was a stranger. Would you like it's like you know you tell your kids don't take candy from strangers? Mm-hmm. Is that what? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I guess, but it, but 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 if it, but if candy. but maybe if it's jewelry, you take the chances. <laughs> no, I mean a very expensive. She was a young, beautiful girl, and here comes a stranger like from another place. You don't know. Yeah. So tell me why he Eliezer was sent to find the family of Abraham. Uh, oh, so in his family, I I think oh, so that's another good point. So it's Abraham put as a uh, as a non negotiable deal breaker that she has she cannot be from this from the from the land of Israel from Canaan. They're idolaters. Mm-hmm. 
go look at my family. It doesn't seem like it was a deal breaker that should be part of the family, but it would be better. But it has to at least be my community. And I think my theory in this is that, you know, acclimating two people who have, <coughs> you know, different genders and different perspectives and everything in life yeah, is hard enough. You don't need to compound it by making that they're from different places, they have different cultures, yeah. different backgrounds. But didn't like, they believe then, like we believe now, that mixing blood from within the same family brings well, you worried, normal children? No. So you want to know about the genetics? Yeah, that's the way it sounds to me. Like, so it's okay. consanguinity. Yes, exactly. Um, well, in truth, in genetics today, if you were to marry your first cousin, which I'm not saying one way or the other, it's your prerogative, but that only increases 2%, which is a lot, I guess, but it's the, the, the chance of having a uh, genetically um, challenged progeny. Uh, but, uh, but even if you marry someone who you're not related to at all, you yeah. still run the risk. But uh, I think perhaps the lesson is that when you're looking for a spouse, right, don't get too exotic and try to just go out there and marry someone from a totally different culture because all you're doing is making the transition more difficult, hence more likely to succeed. More, more likely to fail, sorry. Less likely to succeed. Uh, why? Marriage alone, acclimating two people, is hard enough. If they are just totally different, if they don't if they don't speak the same language, they don't have the same slang, they don't have the same background, they don't know the same jingles from television, right? They're just different. Like they have so, they have little, much less to base their relationship upon. They have much more of of of, of uh, discomfort or, or lack of chemistry because they're just different. It's like when you sit, to this, you see someone from Sweden on the plane; they could speak an impeccable English, but the cultures are so different. Perhaps what Abraham was saying is, this is our family. This is what we're like. They're more like us there. Don't uh, go there because you'll, you'll, you'll likely face uh, more, uh, uh, more success. How are we doing, everyone? Doing well? Mm-hmm. So we see some very timely uh, life uh, lessons uh, in respect to spouse selection. Um, let's proceed on. We'll find out some more interesting things about that. He said, Blessed is Hashem, God of my master, Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and his truth from my master. As for me, on the path has Hashem guided me, the house of the brothers of my master. The girl ran and related to the household of her mother, according to these events. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran to the man outside to the spring. It was when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on the hands of his sister and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, Thus did he speak to me, the man. He came to the man, and indeed he was standing by the camels by the spring. He said, Come, you who are blessed of Hashem, why should you stand outside when I, when I have cleared the house and place for the camels? So the man came to the house and, and harnessed the camels. He gave straw and fodder for the camels and water to bathe his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was placed before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until then that I have spoken my words. And he said, Speak. Then he said, A servant of Abraham am I, and Hashem has blessed my master greatly. And he became great. Okay, so uh, just for the structure of what's going to happen now, 
we had the whole story. We have Eliezer. He was tasked with a mission of going to find a spouse for Isaac. He was given certain requirements. He arrives with all these camels, where they're carrying lots of uh, uh, booty, perhaps. Not booty is a bad word, but uh, uh, lots of uh, resources. They're called resources. Uh, they arrive at the at the well. He starts praying. Ask the Almighty, I'm going to do this test. He, you know, he sees Rebecca. He has this. He, he runs over to her. And she feeds all the camels. She gives all the camels. The whole story. He gets all excited. He, he starts giving her jewelry, and he says, "Whose family are you from?" And she's like, "Oh my goodness, she's from the right family." Yeah. Right. All excited, he starts praying. Thanks, 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 God. Right. Rebecca runs inside. She tells everyone, "Love on her brother." Runs outside and says, "Oh gosh, come in, come in." And he walks in, and they say, "Eat." He says, "No, no, no. First, I have to do my mission, which is another important lesson." If you're tasked with a mission, you don't just start engorging yourself with food. First, you take care of what needs to be done. Then you move on to uh, the other stuff, taking care of yourself. And now he's going to start repeating the entire story from beginning, which is something that the sage is going to point out. and says, wait a minute. The Torah goes out of its way to mince words. The Torah does everything to not put an extra letter, an extra this, an extra that. Why is the Torah so liberal here in the usage of these precious words? The Torah doesn't say words unnecessarily. It seems like uh, the lesson perhaps for us is that there's something crucial about this story, about this encounter, about this courtship, that it's important for us to hear it again, perhaps with a little bit nuance. There's lots of different nuances in the difference between the the way it happened and the way it was retold. And uh, it's on. It's our responsibility if we're to study this, you know, the depth that we're trying to do it to try to glean some lesson from this repetition of the story. It doesn't seem to add much content. There's no. There's no more information to the story that we hadn't known earlier that we're going to learn now. It's. It's just, uh, you know, little uh, inflections of 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 the of, you know of, of the scripture that maybe we could use to. Um, uh, to, to, to gain more insight. But the idea, just the idea that we should for sure know is that the Torah is, often does not repeat itself. Here, for some reason, perhaps we'll find a reason, maybe we won't, and we'll move on. But for here, for some reason, Torah went out of its way to repeat it, yes. Mm-hmm. And the others, are you going to point out the differences because they must be significant? Uh, do you want me to point them out? What? I'm sorry. As we go along, the way he tells it now, compared to the way it happened, compared to the way he says the prayer at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, my my um, uh, my statement was was came out of uh, 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 what? Well, like I said, I want to finish the whole. So I'm not to stress too much about it. But I'll tell you what Rashi says about this. Rashi says a little later on, Rashi's going to say that who we're talking about? We're talking about uh, Abraham's servant. Think about that. It's it's not even Abraham. It's Abraham's servant. And this whole episode, he you know he's the primary subject. He, you know he's the main character. Well, we know his name. His name is Eliezer. It doesn't say. It doesn't call him that. It's true. It does earlier. 
Either way, it, he doesn't seem like he should play so such. He's not such a central character. If you're going to repeat a story, maybe say something about Abraham, something yeah. about Isaac. So, what Rashi says very interesting. He says the Torah is trying to teach you that the lessons you could learn from even the slave or the servant of the patriarchs even is worthy of being repeated. So that Rashi seems to indicate that the lesson itself uh, of this repetition is not merely in the details, but in the general idea. We have to take the, the stories of Genesis, the stories of our forefathers, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so seriously, because even a servant, right, who's obviously less uh, central, less important than the, you know than the patriarchs themselves. But even him, who who was somewhat associated with Abraham, even an episode with him is worthy of repetition. How much more so do we need to analyze, right? Finely with a finely combed, fine tooth comb, a fine tooth comb. Sorry, fine tooth comb. These the stories of of our patriarchs themselves. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, let's 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 move right on. Go ahead. Oh, you want someone else? Yeah, I don't know how it works. Is someone else usually yeah, read? I like the way you read. What you say? I like the way you read. Yeah, you do a good job. Don't yeah. Keep going. Where, where are we at now? Is that yeah, everyone okay with that? Uh, no, people say, I want to read. I want to read. Anybody want to read? Do I know it became great? What? I'm going to abstain to the doctor. Okay, Howard, let's go. Seventh of Abraham am I, and Hashem has blessed my master greatly, and he became great. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, slaves and maidservants, camels and donkeys. He birthed Sarah, wife of my master, a son to my master, after she had grown old, and he gave him all that he possesses. And my master had me take an oath, saying, Do not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, that I dwell in their land, unless... To the house of my father you go, and to my family, and you shall take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow after me. He replied to me, Hashem, whom I have walked before him, will send his angel with you, and will make successful your journey, and will take a wife for my son, from my family, and from the house of my father. Then will you be released from my oath when you have come to my family, and if they will not give her to you, then you shall be released from my oath. I came today to the spring, and I said, Hashem, God of my master Abraham, if you have the desire, please to make successful my path that I go upon. Indeed, I am standing by the spring of water. Let it be that the young woman who comes out to draw water, and I shall say to her, Give me to drink, please, a little water from your jug, and she will answer me, Certainly. You may drink, and also for your camels I will draw water. She will be the woman whom Hashem has designated for the son of my master. And I, even before I had finished speaking to my heart, of a sudden, Rebecca was going out with her jug upon her shoulder, and she descended to the spring and drew water. Then I said to her, Give me to drink, please. She hurried, and she lowered her jug from upon herself, and she said, Drink, and also your camels I will give to drink. So I drank, and also the camels she gave to drink. Then I questioned her, and I said, The daughter of whom are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, son of Nabor, who was born to him by Milah. And I placed the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her hands. 
Then I bowed my head low and prostrated myself to Hashem, and I blessed Hashem, God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the path of truth to take the daughter of the brother of my master for his son. So it seems like he wow. it was just an entire re- re- yeah. repetition of everything that happened till now. Uh, every detail. I didn't hear before that uh, that the angel accompanied him. Maybe it was the angel. I don't remember that. You remember that? In this, uh, in, this, in this one, he said, yeah, but I don't before, remember that I don't remember. I don't remember it either. I thought that was amazing. But he describes it so detailed. Yes. Rabbi, do you believe that Rebecca and her family has, had heard of Isaac and Abraham? What if they were pen pals? No, have, did, they think, did they know? Did they know, know they were relatives? Well, yeah. Did yeah. they know Abraham was this mighty, monolistic person? Or, or did, did they not monotheist. know? Oh, you were monotheist. I, I, it's a question. I don't know. Um... Well, if you notice, okay, you notice when Lavan comes running out and he says, "I've cleared out the house." Right. So I've cleared. What did he clear out the house? What was in the house before the that? I, the idols. The idols. Yes. So, so it seems like he known. knew yeah. this yeah, is. Somebody was coming. This is Abraham's family. They don't like no idols. Mm-hmm. And Abraham made a name for himself quite young, when he okay. was still out there east. So I guess they knew. They knew for sure knew him and his beliefs. Did they know to what great heights that he had reached, uh, back, you know, out west? I don't know. It's a good question. You know, there's another interesting thing about Laban. You notice that it said here, it gives you a clue already about his personality <laughs> when it said that when he looked and he saw the nose ring and the bracelets, then right. he all of a sudden, hey. He started running, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and that's correct. Did he think that this man that gave the nose ring and the bracelet was Somebody that's going to court her or that came from, through somebody. Did he think that he was directly, because he welcomed him like, come, this is my sister, I, I you know. I think um, the sages point out that, that you've always mentioned camels, 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 camels. Yes. It seems to emphasize in the camels a lot. And by the way, there's this mistaken notion that domesticated camels didn't exist in the time of Abraham. There was a story that in the New York Times uh, about two, two or three months ago saying that some Israeli, of course they have to be Israeli, you know, the Israelis are trying to debunk the Torah more than anyone else. Some Israeli, listen to this, guys. Listen listen, listen to the absurdity, okay? I'm going to let you judge. This is what the article says. You could Google it, and if you don't believe me, check it out. The article says as follows. Ready? An Israeli uh, paleontologist, whatever, found a fossil of a domesticated camel that he dated to 10th century before the Common Era. Okay? A thousand, a thousand years, which is 800 years after Abraham, roughly. Okay. And this, he used as proof that Abraham didn't have domesticated camels. That's the article. I'm not, I am not joking. How did he know that the fossil was domesticated? Well, yeah, let's, that, that's assumptions. Remember, that's what I said. Let's assume he's right. Let's assume he's right. Yeah. How does it disprove the fact that there could have been a domesticated camel 800 years earlier? The whole thing's so bizarre. Like, and this was published in the New York Times. It's like saying, I went to the library. I found a copy of the New York Times from 1952. It must be the New York Times. It wasn't printed in 1905. It must be. I, I found one that's 1952. So therefore it wasn't printed in it was never. It was never, it was never published. That's exactly the same logic. It's so bizarre. But um, check it out. And you know, just if it. What's the title? Remember? 
just Google New York Times Bible Camel and find it. Um, I don't know what the title is. Some Israeli guy, yeah. Um, but literally, that is what the article says, which is, it's so bizarre, the lengths that people would do to try to disprove the Torah. It's all the time. Uh, yeah, but, um, so the Torah is stressing a lot his camels, Abraham's camels, and the sages point out that Abraham's camels had a brand. They, had, they were distinct. Why were they distinct? They all had muzzles. Oh. So Abraham says, I don't want my camel eating from someone else's produce. My camels always have muzzles. That's the way that that's the way they are. It comes up. It comes up earlier um, when uh, Lot and Abraham were having this uh, schism. Right? It mentions that Lot's camels were going, you know, unmuzzled, and Abraham's camels were, were muzzled. So it's possible that that Lavan saw these muzzles on the camels, and the Torah stressing these camels because these camels were different, were distinct. And he says, "This is not one of us. This is someone. This must be someone who has this uh, very, very strong." Moral uh, compass. They say, "Oh, I'm putting muzzles." I can only that can only mean Abraham. So um, you know, and then and that would explain why he says, "I clear cleared out all the idols." I wanna I wanna do a callback here to um, uh, just to uh, to Anne's point to, to try to find maybe one little distinction. So we had the the angel, for example, yeah. is one. But I'm gonna give even a smaller distinction. I want to look at page one twenty seven. On the second line, the fifth word of the line, it says Ulai in Hebrew. What does it mean? Perhaps. It means perhaps, right? What does it mean? Perhaps the woman will decide, will not want to come with me. This one. Everyone notices that? Everyone sees it? Now I want to turn back to page 121. Keep your hand there. Keep your hand on 127 and go back to 121. Okay, Remember, this is where he's recounting the story. On 121 is when the story actually happens. The top line of 121, the last word of the line. What does it say? Okay. Ulai. The, the same word, same Hebrew word, Ulai. Same word on the bottom, perhaps, correct? Different spelling. Oh, different spelling. What's the difference? One has the verb and one has the... One of the three dots. Now, what's interesting is that in Hebrew, some people mistakenly say that Hebrew has no vowels. That's actually quite incorrect. Hebrew does have vowels, just sometimes the vowels are in the form of letters. As in the word ulai in page 121, the vav, the second letter of the four-letter word ulai is a vav, which is a vowel, which means the u sound. Uh, In the same word... On page 127, describing the exact same sentence, it has the word ulai without the vowel, which seems seemingly very minor, right? It seems like a very minor difference in the story and the recounting of the story. But it's not, because if you take the word ulai without the vowels, just aleph, lamed, yud, it can also mean eli, which means to me. And our sages point out that the fact that the Torah omitted the vav, the vowel, in the recounting of the story, it's to show, to show Eliezer that when he came to Abraham and says, perhaps I will find, the woman won't follow me. What was his motivation? He said, perhaps the woman won't follow me. What he was really thinking, Eli, which means to me. Turns out that Eliezer had a daughter quite eligible daughter. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm Abraham's yeah. confidant. I'm his right-hand man. 
I have a daughter, wonderful daughter, wonderful character. Amazing, amazing girl. Isaac, obviously. Isaac is the hottest guy around. And Abraham tells him, I want you to head out east to find a woman, a spouse, for Isaac. So, so what does he say? Well, what's his, what's, what's, his, what's his retort? What if the woman doesn't want to come back with me? Ulai, perhaps the woman won't come back, come back to me. That's what, and then you look at page 121, that's, that's what he says. It seems like a very, very logical argument. You want me to go back uh, east to find a spouse? Well, what if she doesn't want to come back here with me? Later on, right, he's recounting the story, and he's going through the motion. He's saying, I asked Abraham, what if the woman doesn't go back to me? There it says, without the vav. Because there he realizes that he... The reason why, deep down, in his subconscious, when he was asking this question, what if the woman doesn't want to come? It was because he had a deep inner resistance mm-hmm. to Isaac actually ha- having some, having someone other than his own daughter. Yeah. And he didn't know that. And dur- during the time of when it actually happened, right, during the actual time, it was Ulai with Avav. There's no other word that could be, that, that could be made out of those letters. It's just perhaps... And that's what, and in his mind, he didn't know what motivations were really lingering underneath his conscious. Later on, he realizes, ah, the reason why I asked that to Abraham is because I really want Isaac for myself, Eli for me. And this subtle difference is quite subtle, um, but our sages pointed out that sometimes when people say or do things, they don't really know why they're saying or doing doing. He, he has a resistance, and he's coming up with arguments against it because deep, deep down, in probably in his unconscious, he's not aware of it at the time. He, he there's something about uh, said item that he doesn't want, and he's rejecting it, and he doesn't even know why. And only later on, right, if he's able to analyze the episode post facto, and he says. Why was I so resistant? Why, why was I coming up with things? Well, what if she doesn't want to come back? The real reason? You, you, you understand your real motivation. How and this you, is... How do you find that in the Torah? I mean, that she, he even has a daughter. Well, it's... Um, it I, how do I find it? Here, in a commentary Maybe down the there. Commentary. <laughs> well, the commentary. Well, it's from Rashi. Rashi, Rashi okay. quotes a midrash. Ah, one twenty-seven on the number thirty-nine. Rashi quotes a midrash. The midrash says, uh, "Eli." It says, "Eli," without the without the uh, without the vav, mm-hmm. uh, because a daughter. Elias had a daughter, and he was trying to find a spouse for her, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and that's why he said "Eli" to me. Well, on page one twenty-one, it also said. Oh, so the, so so that so that's the spell. Okay, so that so that so so this is the difference, right? Okay, uh, where were we? But this, oh, just this last point that I said, it's very unsettling. It's unsettling to think that there are times where we make logical or what we think to be logical arguments logical statements, asking logical questions, when in reality we're just being strung along by some whim, some desire that we don't even know. We don't even know why we're, why we're resistant or why we're embracing something. We think we, we're saying it, but we don't really know what's really lying beneath 
Uh, and that's very unsettling because it's very unsettling to think that you're kind of not in control. Like there's, there's so many factors contributing to your stance on a certain matter. Right, so it's unsettling. <laughs> exactly. We're on the bottom of page 128. Here. You know, I had a... I'll give an example. 128? I'll give an example. Okay. Uh, it's... A, it's okay. The, I have a student who uh, started observing Shabbos. Every week, observing Shabbos. Story, what happened was he ended up... This, events happened that caused him to... I, I don't know, regress or uh, regress in his progression. We used to learn every week and or twice a week. He would come over for Shabbos. We would stay for Shabbos. And, and um, I was saying to him, I was talking to him, and I was saying, what happened? Like, he kind of fell off a cliff. I, I know what I know what happened. There was someone else. He got involved with some... Yeah. No, no, but... No, somebody, someone somebody Jewish. Who was not observant or didn't well, want yeah, to but someone who. Didn't yeah. Want so I said. Well, yeah. So I said to him, "What happened?" He said, "You know, you you were you were doing great. You were like growing. He was studying Torah. He was just mm-hmm. vibrant in his Judaism, and he was observing Shabbos, which is unbelievable." And I, and he said to me, actually, more precisely, this other cause for his uh, regression mm-hmm. uh, set. Well, how how could we keep how do we keep Shabbos? Because what happens when my uh, my sibling who lives in Galveston has a baby on Shabbos and we can't go visit them in the hospital on Shabbos? <laughs> Literally, that was their argument. Uh, that was their argument against observance of Shabbos because you can't drive to Galveston on Shabbos. So what? It's only one Friday. Well, well that but the, the, but what, what you're saying is obviously that's the logical yeah. argument, but in reality, that's not the reason. For yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. just something they're just spinning it's out. It's an excuse, exactly. It's an excuse, but in their head, it could be very logical. They're thinking, well, well, what do you do? Like, this is something which happens very often, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the reality is because they are being, for whatever reason, whatever the underlying reason for their resistance to Shabbos, whatever that may be, uh, uh, that is causing them to come up with these cockamamie uh, theories. Uh, anyhow, that was that was that was, uh, that was uh, but yes, it's very unsettling uh, to think that uh, that what we think to be our real reasons for our questions, our statements, or even our stances, our positions, like are not the real reasons. There's other stuff under uh, you know beneath the surface. Okay. Lucky you. Now we're getting to the pages you read. I'm doing pretty bad, pretty good. No, for not, okay. good. not bad. Okay. How many more pages? Not very many. Not you. Okay. okay. Um, where were we up to? We're up to page. We're up to now. One twenty-nine. Yeah. And now the intention to do you have kindness and truth with my master. Tell me, and if not, tell me, and then I will turn to the right or to the left. Okay, so we're back on the story. He finished recounting the whole story to to Rebecca's family. And now he's saying, okay, fine. Are you going to give me the daughter? Are you going to you know, give me Rebecca or not? And I'll have to find out what to do. I'll go right or left. I'll, go, I'll do something else. Okay, what happens? Then Laban and Bethul answered and they said, from Hashem has gone forth the matter. We are not able to say to you, bad or good. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go and let her be a wife to the son of your master as Hashem has spoken. And it was when he heard the servant of Abraham, their words, he prostrated himself to the ground to Hashem. The okay, so let, 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 let's stop here. I want to Rabbi, analyze this. Yes. 
they're talking about Hashem also. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so it was the idol thing, and yet they're... Yeah, so okay, is so... it the idol? Maybe no, it wasn't the idol, because if they're Hashem... Okay, so this is an interesting thing, because it seems like if if you stick along with this family, right, you have Rebecca and her brother, Laban, we'll meet him again in Genesis. Okay, because I, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, they have a son by the name of Jacob. Jacob ends back there, he is, and he marries two of Lavan's daughters. He marries two two of his of his cousins. Well, I understand, but either way, this guy Lavan is the uh, brother of Rebecca, the matriarch of the Jewish people. And the father of Rachel and Leah, yeah. more matriarch of the Jew, of the people. So he seems like he's kind of like the Jewish people's father-in-law in yeah. a certain respect. Yeah, he's the good one. Yeah, supposedly. Uh, but on the other hand, he's a liar. Yeah, so he's a very confused mm-hmm. character, and this is common. It's common. There's many examples of it in Genesis where you have people that are in turmoil. Not because they don't believe in God. They believe in God. Hey, look what he's quoting. He's saying, this is from God, of course. And even though we'll see in, in the next few verses that he totally recants the next morning. They sleep overnight. He says, oh, no, no, no. She ain't going nowhere. We'll get to that. But um, he seems to have a keen awareness of God, yet uh, he lives a contradictory life. And this is something which is which is quite common. And you know why? I also think it's important for us to realize that Idolatry and paganism to us is totally illogical. You go to India and you see real, real paganism, like people bowing down, prostrating on all fours in front of these little figurines, and it seems to be so bizarre. And how do these people be intelligent? How do they, like it's so insane? Like you know, the, if a cow crosses the state, they they assign certain uh, certain um, deity status to cows in India. So if a cow a cow comes in the road, everything stops. The cow is master. No one touches it. And it's so bizarre. And the Torah tells us that the Egyptians also had a certain, uh, gave deity status uh, to sheep. Very bizarre to us. Uh, it seems like in times of old, paganism made a lot more sense to people. So it wasn't like people, and they just had some sort of yearning to uh, assign divine powers to physical objects and it does you know and therefore if someone can intellectually know that god exists yet want to commit idolatry how that how that uh, how that works is 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 an enigma to us it's very bizarre rabbi it's, i was just thinking that just two examples here um let's say uh, some aliens from planet x dropped into your home in the morning or show in the morning and there are a group of men speaking to this person some strange language, you know, mm-hmm. they're davening in that, and the alien might think, who are these people talking to? I mean, what's this all about? You know, they're not talking to each other, but they're, they're speaking the strange language to me, or it's like if the same alien went to a hospital and saw an operation going on, he might think, what are they doing to this poor guy? They're cutting him up, and, you know, he's bleeding all over the place, and, you know, this is cruel and inhumane, so... It's kind of like you know, if you don't have all the knowledge, you're kind of in the dark. So, so what's the, what's the, what's your point there? 
So therefore, that what? Therefore, what? So maybe it's not so hard to understand. You sense that these people are bowing down before. Well, are you? I mean, to us, it seems strange. Well, it's I'm saying, but to a sign, it's not just it's not just a language barrier. We know exactly. They could explain in very clear English, albeit with a slight, uh, you know, accent. But uh, they explain very clearly why they're doing it. Uh, it seems healthy intellect rejects assigning divine powers to physical beings, right? Uh, now, why they do it is, is very for us. It's bizarre. I, maybe they have a reason. It's not an intellectual reason. It can't be an intellectual reason. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's possible. It's just a uh, just something that they've, they 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 you know they it's a vestige of previous generations. Um, I'll get to you, Connie. Uh, sure, uh, where you know it was more it had more of a substantial reason. Oh, I, I don't know. Like you said, it, yes, but I don't, I, I don't well, think. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, and, you know, don't take this the wrong way. But when we take the Torah out of the ark and we all stand up, you know, again to an outside observer, it might be why are, yeah, but, why yeah. are these people standing up and this, this person's holding up this? I understand. This I understand. I understand your example. Parchment. Mark, I send your example, but I think I'm just trying to point out that there might be a very significant difference. If someone just walks into a shul and sees what's happening, and they don't know, they're ignorant. Not in a bad way. They just don't know. Lacking knowledge of what we're doing, it might seem very bizarre. For us, looking at pagans, we know exactly what they're doing. So it's not, there's no knowledge gap. We know exactly what they're doing, and that and that knowledge uh, seems that or that practice when you know what they're doing is very bizarre. That's my point. And why they do it is something we don't know. I, I think it's probably because it's it's vestiges of previous civilizations where paganism was ubiquitous. Um, but, I, you know, it is bizarre. And, 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 it's, and it's, not, it's not logical. It cannot be. It's, it, 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 to, to assign divine powers to a cow is illogical. And Abraham led the way years and years and years ago, and the whole world pretty much has already moved to acceptance of the idea that if God does exist, he's not a physical being marked by physical limitations, much less some figurine that they put in the corner and they just bow down to. Yes, uh, we had two. Um, uh, Lynn, it doesn't matter who's for Yeah, and you don't have to go back to the times sure. of Noah. We have uh, we have the Roman historian Deo Cassius. I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, he writes, and it might be an exaggeration, but he writes that the Romans had in excess of thirty thousand gods. So yes, and and that's why Judaism was such a like a novel, exciting mm-hmm. re- religion because it was such a creative idea that there's one only one power really only that that you cannot you can't see you can't you know you can't experience with your physical uh, faculties uh, yes yeah, so uh, so you know yeah it's true and um, I'm not, I wasn't trying to belittle other people in the way they in the way they live 
but the point is, is that healthy intellect rejects it, and that's why. And that's you know, and and if that was the way your family did it, you don't know to ask any other, you know, any you know, healthy intellect rejects a lot of practices that people still do, right? So um, it's it's possible that people do it because that's the way their parents were doing it for from time immemorial. And that's what they're doing. I don't think about it. Um, because I didn't know the whole idea behind it. You know, like, why is this man wrapping leather around his arm and putting something between his eyes? And mm-hmm. what's this all about? You know, mm-hmm. I have no idea what's going on, and it seems kind of weird or strange. But, but once you learn, it makes sense. Right. And like everything in Judaism, there's no, there's, no, uh, there's no requirement for us in observance of our faith to just take what we call a leap of faith. It's not really, we don't have that. Yes, Lynn. But that, but that's also the, was the reality, and I, I think that um, if you look at um, verse uh, ninety, which is the, really what I where I started preparing for today, uh, verse ninety. I'm sorry, not ninety, not fifty. I apologize, not ninety, fifty. I apologize, fifty. Uh, it says a statement like they quoted God, but additionally they said we're not going to withhold this uh, this marriage because this marriage seems like it was destined by God to happen. If you open up the Talmud, Talmud talk, talking about providence and how providence plays a role in marriage. It says this principle of providence playing a part of the Almighty uh, orchestrating that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that you know, that a, a man and a woman who are destined to marry should have that opportunity to do so, should, should, should encounter each other. That is a principle which is such a strong principle that the Torah says it, that the prophets say it, right? The, the and that the writings, the, all three sections of the Jewish Bible, say this particular point. That's what the Talmud says in Tractate Moedkatan, eighteen B, and it says, "Where in the Torah does it say that the Almighty orchestrates is the one behind a husband and a wife meeting each other?" This here, verse, here. this verse, that Besuel and Lavan said. From Hashem came this thing, that this marriage is from the Almighty. So not only are they quoting God, but we use this statement coming from Lavan and Basul as proof to a concept of God orchestrating marriages. And this idea, I think, is important. It's kind of a piggyback on what we were saying earlier. We talked about 
how this uh, selection process, that's the word we use, right? Selection process that Eliezer is doing to find a spouse. And the, the thing that's taking prominence is his prayer. Because he recognizes this idea that who is the one who's going to put husband and wife together? The Almighty. It comes from God. And if it comes from God, you, you cannot possibly, a man is limited, or women by when I say man, I mean a mankind, are limited with our scope of vision. Even if we do our due diligence, and even, even if we say it, we make a test, like we talked about earlier. You make a test. You know what you need. I need a person that's a kind person. That's so important. Ten amount of points. I'm going to develop a test. Even if you do everything that you could do, you'll still, you still don't have the scope of vision to know for sure, with absolute certainty, this is the right one for you. You don't know. Ultimately, we have to rely on the Almighty. Because the Almighty is the one right, who is going, who is putting us together, and all we all is re- that's required of us is to do our due diligence. We can all, we're limited on what we can do. We can't. We, right, there's, there's, it's not possible for a human to know exactly someone else's character. It's not possible for a human to know exactly what character they need. And it's not possible for a human to know what's going to be down the line. What what will life bring to this couple? What circumstances will they encounter? And what characteristics are important for them to manage, uh, to survive uh, together as a unit? Constantly growing and deepening their love for each other. How are you supposed to know that? Unless you're a prophet or the Almighty. You don't know those things. So you have to rely on the Almighty. Does that mean that you don't have to do your due diligence? No. Eliezer did his due diligence. He's praying, right? Praying that, 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 that that's the, at the core of what he's, he's... He prays, and then afterwards, when he's successful, he gives thanks to the Almighty. But he also does this test. So perhaps maybe the conclusion that we have from this episode of spousal selection is, uh, number one, it starts off and it ends with this recognition of God ultimately being the one who's putting man and wife together. Because maybe people aren't following these instructions. People think that they're able to make their own decisions or they don't do their due diligence. I know. I I, I collected some stories. I found them in one of my grandfather's diaries, which I probably shouldn't be reading. Uh, I certainly (laughs) shouldn't be sharing with you. But I will anyhow. Good. (laughs) Um, It... uh, so my grandfather, my, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, she grew up in Lithuania, one of the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Now, Lithuania is a seemingly insignificant country. In your, you look at Europe, it's, it's very insignificant. Yes. However, however, in the total world, what you say it's significant? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I it's very say that significant. On the south side of Chicago. Well, yeah, but or or, or I'm, I'm I'm Lithuanian. I, well, yeah, of course it is. But my point like this is that in the grand scheme, huh? Well, I'm Lithuanian myself, as 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 the story will bear out. But for Torah Judaism, for the yeshiva of or Torah Judaism, Lithuania was at the center, the epicenter. All the major yeshivas were in Lithuania, and the biggest city in Lithuania is a city called Kovna, 
and in the suburb of Kovna, a city called Slabodka, and Slabodka was the center of yeshivas. Huh? Well, Vilna is, is the capital of Lithuania, but for hundreds of years it was in Poland. So Vilna was over there fighting over Vilna for hundreds of years. Poland and Lithuania. So they're all, it's always going back and forth. Uh, so the, the you know the uh, the uh, at the early part of the 20th century, uh, Kovno was the capital, even though it was only like a provincial capital. Until we get back to uh, Vilna, which is rightfully ours. Anyhow. My grandmother, uh, paternal, my father's mother, she came from perhaps like the most prestigious family of Lithuanian Jewry. Like literally, like from the top of the line, like to the... the uh, creme de la creme. Yeah, like the Kennedys. <laughs> Think of the Kennedys of like the, the, the Torah world. That's what, that, that's what her family was. My grandfather grew up in Berlin. Okay, Berlin... It wasn't such a hotbed of like a Torah Judaism. It wasn't. That's where, uh, uh, you know, that's where the you know the, the, the Jewish, uh, huh? Is that where the well, the reform, but 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 the whole idea of wholesale abandoning of Judaism was in was was in Germany. And my grandfather grew up in Germany, and eventually made his way to yeshiva. But he was saying, if you look at, he was kind of like a nobody. No one knew him at that point when he was young. Anyhow. Grandpa ended up in yeshiva in 1938 in Poland. Uh, 1938, as a German national, all German nationals were expelled from Poland. If you learn about World War II, a little bit of the uh, you know, things that happened before, and it, it makes a lot of sense. Anyhow, he was kicked out of Poland. He ended up in Sweden. And for the duration of the war, from 1938 to 1946, he was in Sweden. What was he doing in Sweden? Being neutral. Well, Sweden was neutral. So he survived the war... Being in Sweden, he was crucial. He 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 he's procured visas. He saved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jews single-handedly in Sweden. Incredible stuff, single-handedly. Um, like for example, there was an entire yeshiva, the Mir Yeshiva, that ended up in in, in Japan. Five hundred students ended up in Japan. Now the United States was at war with Japan, and they could only survive. They had someone fundraising for them in, in the United States. Problem is, is, you fundraise, you have tons of money, but how are you shipping it to Japan? There's, there's no mail going from Japan to the United States or vice versa. So what they would do is they would ship it to my grandfather in Sweden. He would take off the American packaging, would put it another packaging, and ship it off to. He was like the liaison, the the you know the interface between like everyone. Like he was just saving hundreds of Jews. Anyhow, fast forward nineteen. 19- 1945, a bunch of uh, like 20,000 Jewish girls were put on transports after the war, right, to Sweden. They ended up in, somehow they ended up in Sweden. And my grandfather just, he heard that there's some girls, some Jewish, maybe they were Jewish girls. So he went to like the camps and, and he, um, and he sees like a bunch of Jewish girls. He's like, goodness, and they went through the, atrocities of the Holocaust and they're just here in Sweden. He says, that's it. I'm starting a school for them. And crazy events. He ended up, they just gave him a building. Incredible stories what happened. He ended up with a building. He started a school for, for Jewish girls. Now, he wasn't, he was still single even though he was already 34. He had been there for eight years in, like in Sweden with like nothing going on there. And 
my grandmother was one of those girls, and she was hired to be a teacher. And my grandfather would come in once a week. It was in, it was in a place called Lidingrow. He was in Stockholm. He would go in once a week uh, to, to give a class or two, whatever. Anyhow, uh, the rabbi, there was another, another family there that was overseeing. They thought it was a good idea to put my grandfather and my grandmother together. And thing is like this. My grandmother has been like from this prestigious family in Israel and in different parts of Europe, they're saying, oh my gosh, what is happening? What She's going to start marrying this dude from Sweden, from Germany. What's going on? And what they did was they quickly arranged the visa that she should be allowed to go into Israel. The problem is, is that you can't go to Israel. The, the, the British mandate was still, they still said no Jews could go into Israel until 1948. Somehow they procured a visa, which is almost impossible. They got a visa for her. Quickly, let's get her away from him. Uh, quickly, yeah. let's quickly get away from him. And uh, my grandfather had, had a few friends in Sweden, and they said to him, you better quickly grab her, get engaged before she goes. Otherwise, so go, so go to... Yeah. And I'm reading this in the diary. This is like awesome, right? I'm reading this. And... He writes, he says, he ab- so everyone's trying to convince him to get engaged right over there and, and, and to just have it seal the deal. And he says, I said to them, absolutely not. Because the fact that a, wa- a, w- a husband and wife get together, me Hashem, Yad, quotes this verse. This thing comes from God. And if it's meant to be, if the money wants, I'm not going to try to do shtick yeah, 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 yeah. and so try to circumvent, manipulate, and tra- yeah. it'll work out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother heads out. She goes to, and uh, she starts uh, talking to the powers that be, uh, which is her brother-in-law, who was, who was the chief rabbi of, uh, of, of Antwerp, was her brother-in-law. Um, it's like a huge rabbinical uh, family, and she tells him the reasons why she wants to marry him, and then she convinces them, that, and they manage to procure a visa for him as well. What did they? How did they convince the British people to give him a visa? The British, uh, the British authorities gave him a visa. They said, "Oh, Rabbi Wolby was uh, in, in Sweden because Sweden was neutral, and there were lots of. Uh, he has a perspective on the war and all the and all the um, all the, the refugees. And there's lots of women whose husbands just they disappear from their husbands, and he could put people together and help people who who don't know what to. He could be like a." Le- let him in. So they convinced that they, they gave him a uh, they gave him a um, a visa. He went to Israel. They got married. Like they got engaged a week later, and they got married a few months later. And the rest is history. But um, to me, like this story, just the idea of how they even met. They met in Sweden. He's from she, she's from, he's, she's from Lithuania, from like a very prestigious rabbinical family. He's from. Uh, from Berlin, a prestigious family, but not a prestigious rabbinical family. Prestigious, like, academic yeah. family. They were not religious, right? They were not religious. They were on the fence. Um, Is he writing his Mushar teachings at this time? Or not? Well, yeah. We, I, we have many, many of his writings from Sweden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the fact that he even met, how, how the Almighty just turned events that they should happen to, to meet in Sweden, of all places, yeah. in Stockholm. Yeah. <laughs> Stockholm. Who would have thought, right? But that's the way, that's the way it is. And I, and I was thinking... Um, my dad, where did my dad grow up? Grow up. He grew up in a little town, a little hit town in Israel called Beryakov, 
which is if you take Israel and you just throw a dart in the middle of it and you hit some sand dune, you hit it. Right? You got the right place. Where did my mom grow up? She grew up in Brooklyn. And they happened to have met. She was on a uh, she was on a uh, on a visit after high school uh, to Israel, and they happened to have met in Jerusalem. Somehow they met. It's not so clear. Uh, we don't know exactly. Uh, but they met somehow, and they became very quite friendly, and they maintained she went back to America, and, and they decided they wanted to get married, and my mother and my father come from very different backgrounds, uh, albeit both of them quite religious backgrounds, but uh, my father's family is very like Lithuanian, like yeshiva-oriented. My mother's family is from a Hasidic family. Mm-hmm. And my mother says... At 17, 18 years old, 17 years old, I want to marry this guy. And her parents say, what? No way over my dead body, says my grandmother. Uh, she should live and be well. And my mother says is that I, I probably shouldn't have married him. But specifically because my mother says no, I said yes. <laughs> that's, imagine that. That's what she said. If you, if you meet my mother, it seems like atypical. Yeah. Yeah. The point is, is that I I look at that their story as another example of like the Almighty yeah. says these people are going to meet and I'm going to create a scenario where they'll meet and I yeah. I know mm-hmm. if even to talk about the present I, I don't want to bore you with stories six rabbis later mm-hmm. uh, but my nine. like what you know nine? who's well, nine? nine children but not nine no, rabbis six rabbis. Yeah, six rabbis, one not, to rabbis, and then two but, girls, and one guy's not a rabbi, right? In the family. How many rabbis are in your family? Six, right? Oh, in six and two in-law. Whatever. Right. Who's counting? Um, but uh, I, I always, I always say that um, my wife uh, and I, we met in Jerusalem. Uh, she was visiting from Canada. The same thing as your parents. Well, not quite, but. Uh, uh, we were actually introduced by someone. What's interesting is that the person who introduced us, you know, like they have um, police lineups for criminals. Mm-hmm. If I was on a police lineup for criminals, she wouldn't be able to pick me up. This woman had never met me, had never spoken to me. Like, she knew nothing about me. But somehow, some of the Almighty gave her some insight to say, well, maybe this girl who I know, I don't know, and this boy, who I also don't know, in fact, I never even met or saw him or anything about him, maybe we should put them together. I think the Almighty put us together. That's just, you know, the Almighty, however, he might have to bring us to Stockholm, he might have to schlep uh, my mother from New York or my wife from Canada, but the Almighty, finds, the, the Almighty will find a way. And I think that perhaps, you know, that's, that should be the takeaway for us from this story. And maybe that's why the reason why it was repeated, maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, but uh, the words of, of Lavan, of all people, are used as the, um, the rallying cry, so to speak, of this idea. Uh, the, it comes from the Almighty. And I, I want to share, maybe I prepared for the time this, uh, 843, goodness. But this is a really good story. And this is from the Midrash. Anyone wants to hear it? Yeah? yeah okay. Sure. Great story. Okay, I'll say it real quickly. So, um, Roman times, there's this, uh, one of the one of the rabbis, his name is Rabbi Yossi Bar Chalafta. Rabbi Yossi, the son of Chalafta. That was his name. And he was having a conversation with this Roman uh, noblewoman. And the Roman noblewoman says to him, tell me, how many days did it take the Almighty to create the universe? So he says, 
go to Genesis. Six days, and the body ceased to create on the seventh day. She says, oh, really? So what am I doing right now? What's he doing now? What's he doing since then? <laughs> so he says, <laughs> she's trying to trip he's him up. So he says, he's He's putting husband. He's t- he's, yeah, he's orchestrating. Orchestrating the husband and wife should meet. She says, "Really? That's what the Almighty is doing? I could do that." So he says, "I have a thousand male servants. I have a thousand female servants." She made a long line like they do at the end of hockey games. She says, "You, you, 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 you," and she went. And so, anyhow, so what happens? So the Midrash describes what happens. She says the following day. I mean, I'm just saying verbatim what the, what the Midrash says. following day, it talks about three couples. It says one couple came back and uh, one and the man had a broken leg. The next couple came and one of them was missing an eye. They got into a fight and they, they and the last one came and, and, and their, their head was uh, squashed. Literally, that's what it says. And it describes in detail the maladies. And she says, wow. And the last said it didn't work out. We got into a huge fight. And this is not for me. And everyone came back and said, this is not for me. And then finally she goes back, and she goes back to Rabbi Yossi Bar Chalaf, and she says to him, there's no God like your God. That's, that's the story. And I like this story because, you know, as we know, the Torah and even the Midrash is not going to say things that are not necessary. So all the Midrash needs to do to convey its point is to say that it didn't work out. Thousand male servants, thousand. It didn't work out. That's all you need to say. Why do you have to say, well, one guy had a broken leg, and the other guy had a missing an eye, one guy had his head squashed? It seems, well, why are you describing the exact nature of the injuries that they suffered as a result of the fight, as a result of the fact that they weren't meant for each other? So I, I mentioned this once at the, uh, at uh, my, uh, like, at the Sheva Brachas. Uh, the party after the wedding by my, uh, like a couple of days after the wedding, uh, by, I, think, I, I don't remember if it was my sister or my sister-in-law, maybe it was even both. So I said, what the Midrash trying to tell us is like this. Sometimes a husband and wife were put together by the Almighty to be together. For whatever reason, you know, to, to get acclimated with someone is very difficult. And they said, oh, goodness, Gracious, I married the wrong one. I made a mistake. I married the wrong one. I'm doomed forever. Either I'm doomed to misery or I have to get the force. It's a disaster. What the marriage is telling you is that if you marry the wrong one, probably the next day, you'll already know it. In fact, the next day, you might have some sort of indication of how bad it is. You'll be missing an eye, you'll have a broken leg. So I said to him, I said, I, 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 said, I pointed to the room, I say, groom, please stand up and turn around. Like, I'm like, okay, does anyone notice that he's limping? No, right. anyone knows any limbs missing? Right. Everything's all right? You marry the right one. This is the one the Almighty ordained for you. And it's going to be difficult. Why? Because getting acclimated with someone is difficult. But don't think for a second that you marry the wrong one. Anyway, that was a, uh, Let's, uh, to what time do we go to? No. We're almost done. Well, we usually go to about nine. Uh, so we have 12 minutes? Okay, so let's, um... Why don't we just finish reading the entire this, thing? Did you, uh... <coughs> yeah, sure. A lot of us went to the JCC Jewish Festival. There was a movie there called uh, Rewriting History. I don't know if anybody saw it, but it was about Lithuania before Hitler invaded and how they murdered over 100,000 Jews. 
Lithuania or, or Czechoslovakia? Lithuania. Interesting. Before the Holocaust. What year? What year? What year? It's funny because um, my grandmother has memoirs. So she, she published a book of her Holocaust experiences. Mm. Uh, crazy story. Crazy story. Like just, and this is just one story out of you know hundreds of thousands of stories. But she mentions that sometimes the Lithuanians, who were the cohorts of the Nazis, were even worse. Yeah, it's it's it, it just it just brought out the worst of you know, and people that were like seeming quote unquote friendly beforehand, somehow you know when they were you know when anarchy reigned, their true nature uh, surfaced. And the story was about two hundred thousand is a lot. We know that the, would, in the Chmelnit, take, the Chmelnitsky... They would take all the mothers and all the children and they would dig a grave like the size of a football field. They put them all in there and then they shoot them all. Yeah. Incredible. I never saw anything like them. it. Then they'd shoot them. Shoot them. Yeah. With the children in their own. It's crazy. Um, I know that... There, um, are, there are two journalists that are trying to prevent Lithuania in the... I don't know when, but in the Human Rights in the Council. Current time, they're trying to rewrite the history books to say that that never happened. Oh, yeah. So that's what the story uh, was about. Well, it's the same thing that's happening in Houston. I can't believe I'm the only one who saw that. In movie. Houston, the history books, the new history books, they're they rewritten. The Holocaust? Uh, they're changing a lot of words. As a matter of fact, um, Berlin Academy, you know, the, the books that high school is in Berlin Academy, you need, if you have a child, you need to check them out because the way that they talk about Israel is not the way it should be. Palestine mm. and all. Since yeah. you mentioned Lithuania, I started thinking about mm-hmm. I, 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 I have an unpopular alert. Sure. Unpopular opinion alert? Sorry. That's what I say before I, before I say something unpopular. I always say unpopular boy, opinion. Right? So I know the um, the whole Ukraine Crimea thing is in the news. Uh-huh. Um, if you if you read about the massacres that happened, uh, Khmelnytsky, sixteen forty eight, sixteen forty nine, there were these bands of what they call them Cossacks. Yeah, uh-huh. They came from that specific place, Crimea, Crimea. and they slaughtered, literally slaughtered. I think the, the number they gave is 100,000, 100,000 Jews, but countless villages, one after another. And I, I kind of think that the, they had a coming. Unpopular opinion. Okay, move, move right along. <laughs> Let's finish. Let's finish. Uh, finish the whole part. Yes, we have a yeah, four more pages, and if there's any time left, I'll save maybe some insights or not. Let's get Roy. Yeah, okay, Roy. Roy. We're up to uh, verse 53. Then uh, Rebecca arose with her maidens, they rode upon the camels, and they went after the man. 
the servant took Rebekah and he went. Now Isaac came from having gone to uh, Be'er uh, Rahai Roy, for he uh, dwelt in the land of the south. Isaac went out to pray in the field toward evening, and he raised his eyes and saw there were camels coming. So Rebekah raised her eyes and saw Isaac. She fell from the farm camel. And she said uh, to the servant, who is the man who is walking in the field of woods, and the servant said, he is my master. She then took the veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that, had, that he had done, and Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took in marriage Rebecca. She became to him his wife, and he loved her. And thus Isaac was consoled after his mother. Abraham once again took a wife, whose name was Keturah, she bore uh, him Zemram, uh, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Nice names. How old was he? Only a hundred something. <laughs> if anyone uh, needs like a name book, you know, you have to have a new baby. Here you go. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dadan, and the children of Dadan were Ashuram, Lekishim, and Limanim. Excellent. So, um, just to recap what happened here, um, what, what happened was we're kind of tying up loose ends, like tying up loose ends. We have um, very much after this story, it's basically transition. So, Rebecca comes back. She gets married. He loves her. It's another interesting thing. If we have, uh, if we're ever together, maybe if if, if uh, Rabbi Wolby Senior decides next week uh, to have uh, fill in. Maybe we'll get into this in greater detail. Uh, then we move on to Abraham remarrying, 
having lots of kids, sending those kids off with gifts, right? Uh, assigning his legacy to, to to Isaac. We talk about Ishmael's how like we're 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 in trans tra, tra, we're in tra, transition stage. Abraham's going to die. The Torah wants to quickly tell us the stories of. Uh, his his you know his other family so to speak not like the, not not the uh, the Isaac line but the Ishmael line and the line from Keturah which is Hagar same person and you finish that and we'll uh, as we transition to the next parsha the next parsha we, we almost we, we don't we don't hear about them anymore mm-hmm. oh, we hear about them a little bit Ishmael's kids a little bit in passing but they're they part of uh, this uh, narrative is 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 over which is. Um, Point number one, I wanted to share. Point number two, I wanted to give an. Uh, I was asked just a question um, that people could chew over if they're interested in. If you notice when it says in verse um, verse nine, this is on page one thirty three, five lines from the top. Verse nine, it says that Abraham. Well, Abraham dies in verse eight. In verse nine, they bury him in this cave. We had the cave at the beginning of the parsha. Yeah. And um, it says that they bear, who buried him? Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael. So yeah. uh, we don't see any mention of the, the other children from Keturah. Isaac and, and Ishmael. And well, I guess so, yes. That makes sense. And our sages glean a very interesting insight from this verse. And I'll just say what they say. From this verse, we can learn that Ishmael repented. The fact that he let Isaac go first. Ishmael was indeed older, was 13 years older, actually more precisely 14 years older than Isaac. From the fact, from the mere fact that in the funeral procession of Abraham, uh, his older son Ishmael gave precedence to his younger son Isaac, that alone is proof that Ishmael repented from his sinful ways that we saw at the beginning of the parsha, beginning of this section, which is an interesting point to ponder. Uh, anything else that I want maybe to, you guys to ponder on? Maybe um, um, uh, Rebecca falling off the camel. Very interesting. That he married her and then he loved her. Another thing to look at the tent. Um, Oh, one more thing I want you to look at. It just is on your own time if you want extra credit. Uh, verse 7, uh, just two two or three lines earlier on page 133, it's talking about the life the life and, and legacy of, of Abraham, and it says something maybe a little bit bizarre. Uh, it says, And these are the days of the life, I'm sorry, of the years of the life of Abraham that he lived. It seems like it's repeating itself. These are the days of the years of the life of Abraham that he lived. Just say, of the life of Abraham. Yeah. That he lived is extra. Well, but yeah, but it's for a reason. So it's a point to ponder, what is the, uh, why would the Torah go out of its way to say that Abraham, uh, the years of, the, the days of the years of the life that Abraham lived. It seems like a very um, superfluous way, redundant way to say that this is how old he was when he died. So that's all. It's exactly nine o'clock. I wish you all best of luck. Uh, yeah. Yes.
and the commentary. Yeah. There's two different interpretations which don't really make any sense to me. And it says, and her nurse, according to the most common rabbinic chronology, the nurse was sent along because Rebecca was three years old. You want to know how is it possible that she got married when she was three, according well, to this that, tradition? Does, does that make any sense? Um, yeah, so there's, so there, there, there's, there's a dispute as to there's a dispute as to, as to uh, uh, the exact age. What I will tell you is. That uh, it seems, it seems um, quite likely that uh, in ancient times, girls getting married as young as ten or eleven, but not three, eight having kids. We there seems to be okay, but forget about this yeah. number three for a second. We have ample three. evidence of child bearing women at the age of eight. So I well yeah I won't say yeah. the puberty level is constantly just going yeah it used to be like twelve or thirteen and now it's like eight or nine yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, whatever the causes are that and it seems to be very rapid but it seems. But as Alex said, ample evidence that a marriageable age was quite younger. I now it does seem like that she was actually young. Even even she but was not young, three. Oh, but not for three. Sure. So so that so, so that so that's that's bizarre. But it's not quite as bizarre as you might think from today's perspective. Maybe three years after puberty. Maybe that's what they meant. Three years. I I don't know. I'm saying I have I have a three year old. It could carry a lot. No, but no, no. My my, my point is, my my point is like this. My only point is, I I just want to understand what I want. What I'm trying to say is that people in ancient times had physical development much earlier. So three doesn't mean three. Three means something else. I had. Maybe no. in the, well, not well, not all we see. That's there's a great example. Isaac, when she was three, how old was he when she was three? Four. I have yeah. a question about time. But yeah, but that, 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 that that's a good point. It's a good point. That's a good point. The point is, is that people commonly live to be, and just like just like today, people are commonly living to hundred. Uh, yeah, let me say, let me take a point here, just a statistic to bolster my point. Uh, my point is that. Well, I have a question. Uh, we last the year is three hundred sixty-five days. Uh-huh. In this time, how long was a year? Three months. Who says it wasn't three hundred sixty-five days? Three hundred sixty-five days. It's possible that people that people that people um, yeah, but the the the, the you know the Earth uh, revolving around the sun. We have no reason to believe there was any longer or shorter than that. We didn't uh, have a. a I knew the, the beginning of the harvest, the beginning of planting. Well, who, says, who says we don't have that? I was just wondering. We I do, of course we have it, yeah. What, uh, uh, but uh, I lost the crap. Okay. Uh, just think about this, Wendy. Think about, think about this way. But um, um, take this statistic. In 1963, okay, global life expectancy was, do you know? Like 40. 60, 40? 
like 40. Uh, 90, 40. 40. Yeah. I think like the 40. No, I would say. No, no. 63. Yeah. No. Like 40. No. In the 40s. I think it's in the 40s. Now, yes, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Global life expectancy in 1963 was 60 years. 60? Global life expectancy in 2013, a mere 50 years later, which is the second time, was 70. The point is, is that the health and the well-being, the life expectancy of people changes dramatically, very quickly. So the fact that people lived to 100, uh, if you told someone 100 years ago, people would have lived to 100, no one lived to 100. You can change very yes. And now, and an average kid born today, kids born today, uh, will live to 100. Yeah, it's common. And this, yeah. Yes.